All right, hello and welcome to RealCom's second installment in our third part, Next Generation Smart Building Series. I'm Chuck Nicewanger, president of NiceNets Consulting, your RealCom host for today's webinar, Smarter Building Operations, Leveraging Data and Analytics. And thank you for tuning into the live session or viewing this as a recording. The conversation does go by quickly, so you may wanna take a few notes, just warning you ahead of time. But before we get started, let me go over a few housekeeping items to help you have a great webinar experience. First again, thank you to our live attendees. We do encourage you to use the Q&A box at the bottom left of your screen to submit questions or comments. We'll try to get to all the questions, but if we don't get them answered during the webinar, we'll follow up with you once the event has concluded. You'll find today's presentation and the one from session one in this series, along with the presenter bios in the handout section on your GoToWebinar control panel. For the best webinar experience, we do recommend closing out any other internet applications, especially streaming videos. The force is strong with our panelists, so don't watch Obi-Wan Kenobi on Disney. Watch us, you'll learn a lot more. If you are experiencing technical issues with connectivity, sound, or video quality, the best thing to do is disconnect and then reconnect to the webinar link again. You can also email Ian at ithompson, that's I-T-H-O-M-P-S-O-N, at realcom.com for help during the event. But don't worry, you won't miss anything since you'll receive a link to the recording in just a few days. This educational webinar is supported by our outstanding sponsors. Prescriptive Data enables buildings to hit their ESG goals by optimizing operational performance while saving energy, reducing carbon emissions, lowering costs without sacrificing occupant health or comfort. Clockworks Analytics helps you maintain buildings at peak performance by connecting to multiple data sources, then diagnosing performance issues and opportunities, prioritizing those issues, and putting an action plan in motion. Navigator CRE is a platform that collapses all of the technical and operational needs of CRE operations into a single engine that offers you complete control of your data in the cloud to connect to drive and get insights. Interspace supports critical workplace strategies with always on data that tells you the full story when, where, how, and why people use your office. Transform your workplace to support hybrid work styles using Interspace. And Kimberly Clark Professional is committed to innovative products and practices that serve our businesses, ever-changing needs, empower your people, and help navigate change. And let's see just a quick video from Kimberly Clark before we get started. Realize the rewards of being together again. Welcoming clean, healthy spaces. Friendly eyes, new and familiar faces. You help make it possible to bring people together again. But with elevated hygiene standards, you need new tools to help you succeed. Great hygiene starts in the restroom and Onvation makes it easy. Kimberly Clark Professional, featuring trusted brands Scott and Purell, now brings you Onvation, your connected software solution that brings intelligence into the restroom. With Onvation, you gain real-time visibility on product consumption and traffic patterns, helping to improve facility hygiene. Onvation enables smart, proactive restroom servicing so you can help assure the wellness of others as they return to work. Your job helps us rediscover the rewards of being together. Onvation helps you make it possible.
All right, welcome back. I bet you didn't know that Kimberly Clark did that. So check them out. All of these sponsors do much more than what I've outlined here. And we're grateful to have their contributions, not only to our industry, to Realcom and to educating our viewers. Once you hear the outstanding content in today's webinar, I'm sure you want to include these companies as part of your vendor evaluation process. So let's get started. I'll bring on our moderator. It's Michael McMahon. He's Intelligent Buildings Consultant with Newcomb and Boyd. Welcome, Michael. Okay, thank you very much, Chuck. I appreciate it. Uh, it's a pleasure to be I, here today. I'm going to join you at the end, and uh, it's all yours. Thanks. Perfect. Thank you so much. Uh, welcome, everyone. Um, I'll be your moderator today for today's session. And I'd like to talk a little bit about uh, Newcomb and Boyd, where I come from, what my background is, and kind of kick off the, the uh, webinar here. And if we could, yep, there we go, advance the slide. Uh, so we are a firm of consultants and engineers based out of Atlanta, Georgia, but we have a global footprint in our operations. Uh, our focus is helping our clients visualize, specify, and actualize. And so we take you through concept, uh, through specifications and construction documents, et cetera, and engineering, and then through program management and construction management all the way through to day two life cycle. And one of the key concepts that we believe in um, is regenerative and responsive buildings. And what that means to us is we take three base concepts of smart, social, and sustainable elements. Uh, these drivers can come from a myriad of number of sources. And with a judicious application of technology, you can enable those features within the building. So ICT, or your information communications technology platform, uh, software applications, sensory devices to you know, provide feedback. And what that gives you in the end is the connected, intelligent uh, potential in the future, sentient buildings uh, that improve the quality of life. They have great livability, great health, and they provide uh, a, a real good uh, environmental feedback, right? So we wanna make sure that they're not impacting nature in any way. And so all of our design strategies are within that realm of thought, if you will. And so one of the bigger things in order to drive all of this is the data that comes from these technologies and these sensors, which is one of the reasons why we're here today. Uh, because as part of our other part of our belief is the day two operational life cycle that we focus on as well. So it's not just envisioning, designing, building and walking away from it as you know pretty kind of standard in the construction industry uh, since buildings have been built uh, only in the recent times have we introduced things like automation right so that way we can make a thing do a thing at a certain schedule um, based on sensory input like a thermostat uh, adjusting hvac etc but what we really want to focus on is the people and the technology and bring those things together and data intelligence is by far one of the most important ways to be able to accomplish that. It also provides you proof that you're hitting your KPIs and metrics that are associated with any goals that your, your organization happens to set or that you're required to show proof of through you know, different sources like governments and uh, investor dollars and things like that. And so once we get to the built environment, our programming focuses on insights and observations, actual measurements from things like IEQ, human behavior, energy performance, uh, findings uh, so that you can actually do some analysis on those and, and what does all that data mean and making the data really truly meaningful um, so that you can make use of it. Data for data's sake is is garbage. Like it's, it's inundated uh, a lot of organizations because they want everything and then they'll sort it out later. But really, if you take an approach of planning out what data types you want, 
and specifying the data sources that you can get uh, the data from, it's a lot cleaner when you ingest that data and then you can make more use of it. And which of course then in turn leads to ideation and invention. Um, if, if you can stop something from happening or think of a new way to implement a couple of things, uh, that improves your overall uh, building infrastructure that you've got and what you're supporting. And so with that, I would like to introduce our first panelist of the day, uh, Jerry Hamilton. Jerry is the Director of Facilities Energy Management at Stanford University. Welcome, Jerry. Thank you, Michael. Appreciate it. Um, I'll get into the deck here really quick. Um, here's some of the data management-related topics we had in the description for the webinar, and each one of these is really important, and we could spend hours on them. I will give you some high-level uh, points from Stanford University, but I want to spend most of my time on the last one there, the analysis component. You know, things that help us here at Stanford related to data collection and, and transportation. Um, we've got some pretty tight spec on our HVAC and our lighting controls. Uh, we have dedicated, closely monitored VLANs for HVAC control and a separate one for lighting, among other techniques, but this really helps us, we believe. Uh, from a normalization and integration perspective, uh, we believe in having uh, a really defined data ontology. We, we do our best to apply haystack tagging to our uh, building controls project. It's not perfect, but it does at least align all of our stakeholders in a project. We're all aware that we've got an ontology. We need to resolve any gaps as, as the project goes along. So it's a good team organizer. And we've got a, what I'll call a common database optimized for integration with our BMS, and it plays real nice with, with our, our haystack tagging. From a data protection standpoint, um, we essentially manage our own private cloud for the data. We host our own hardware. When we do share data, it's through intermediary platforms, and we apply pretty strict user access um, controls. Uh, just as kind of an anecdote, even when our controls integrators are developing a new building project for us, they're working in a development environment, and we cut the project over ourselves into our production environment when, when we're done. So talking about analysis, um, three themes that kind of go through the following few um, slides is we have an internal ongoing commissioning team. I don't think we're unique in, in that regard, but it certainly was something that was a breakthrough for us in terms of getting proactive use out of our data. Uh, we've layered in some management tools, uh, process management tools on top of the analytics platform, again, to help manage the people. And uh, I'll give you a little bit of insight on some of the steps that we identified, uh, again, for the people to do to, to make the data most valuable. Um, so we have an ongoing commissioning team. We apply Scrum methodology as best we can. We actually had to make our process a little bit more complicated to simplify it. And by that, I mean, until we had uh, preventative maintenance, reactive maintenance, shop supervisors, energy engineers, controls engineers, uh, you know, renewal planning, facilities management staff together, we really couldn't get potent uh, tasks and really cut to the chase, potent work orders. You know, we can release work orders, but if it's not going to be a priority for the organization, they're not going to get done. And so applying scrum methodology with multiple team members means, yeah, we got more people, but what they agree on is going to get done over the next week or, or, or two. Uh, so we've had some good success there. 
Um, this adage is very true, we've discovered. If you've been involved in the data science world, it's all about preparation. And so in a real simplified diagram here, you know, when we apply fault detection diagnostics to our building data, you know, we, we create some rules, we pre-screen the results that come out of the analytics platform, and then we feed that information into our, our scrum team or our sprint team who's going to go out and tackle a building or tackle a challenge. Um, but there's a lot that goes on in each one of these. And in the middle is really the biggest aha for us, and that's the pre-screening. Even once we have data coming in and we've got rules written and the control systems working, um, when we start getting knowledge, information out of the analytics, we have a, one of our data specialists review it first. They're the first person, they're the only person to, to look at it and do a very hefty screening. They'll get rid of obvious problems like no data, missing data, negative data, flatline, and anything even questionable, they'll eliminate it because that becomes cogs in the wheels later on when we start feeding information to our, our larger team. Typically, we will then also have a controls engineer do a, do a quick pass of it because what we want to do is we want to feed very potent analytic outputs to our to our scrum team. Then we get into more precise tools like this. This is specific information related to faults from the analytic software that comes in. But we start layering in some human details here. There's a column here called priority. That is a human entered field that has not coming from the analytics software. The analytics software has its own ranking and priority. But this is where the team decides that, yes, we're going to fix this. And it may be more related to the hot cold calls we've got in the past two weeks, or it may be more related to some information coming out of the asset management system. It doesn't have to be just limited to the, the FDD platform. Uh, then we bring in a typical task management tool, and any tasks that have been assigned related to a fault are going to be in here, but also, again, anything related to this building that the team thinks that they want to tackle during this sprint. And then my last point here, which I really want to emphasize to the team here, is back checking. You can use the same analytics tools to back check to make sure that, hey, I went to fix this fault. It was a communication problem. It was a controls problem. Instrument, whatever the case may be, you go back to verify it was fixed. But what we found, the act of back checking is different than pre-screening and finding faults in the first place. Typically, we have one of our energy engineers do this uh, because they can look from the top down. You know, what are the KPIs we were trying to achieve in the first place? Why do we even have a scrim team? Why do we even have analytics? And they can drill that down to the specific um, resolution task. I liken this to a back, back uh, the, the follow through in, in a golf swing. Um, if you concentrate on that, your swing as a whole is better. If you concentrate on ensuring you get good back checking, the whole process is better. So another topic for another meeting, but Michael, I'm gonna turn it back to you. Great presentation, Jerry. Thank you very much. Uh, what were the keys to success to assemble Stanford's cross-functional analysis team? Well, I, I think it's pretty common among most organizations is energy is your first driver because you can quantify it and get some money around it. Um, the automation team usually has a lot of say because the data is coming from the automation. Uh, it wasn't until we stopped talking about energy that we had success because we had to bring in our maintenance partners. I'm spoiled. I work at Stanford. We've had the opportunity to invest a lot of money into sustainability and energy. Um, 
But there's a certain emotional fatigue that comes from that. And it wasn't until we said, hey, let's go after these reactive maintenance issues. Let's go after these VIP complaints. And that got buy-in from folks. And then it changed how we wrote our rules a little bit. Um, and it became personal for a bigger audience. And that's really was a breakthrough. And we got more people around the table. And we started getting stuff done. So instead of having um, you know, a thousand things on the to-do list and you get maybe 10 done in a year, um, you know, you get a shorter to-do list, but you're getting them all done because the whole team's behind it. Yeah, once you build that consensus and you get that weight behind you, it's just like going downhill, right? Yep. Great. What other variables are used to prioritize faults other than the FDD tool outputs? We have a lot of subjective input. It's kind of the way I define it. You know, it's our maintenance team. They are the ones that interact the most with the asset management system but I can't say there's a specific analytic in the asset management system. Um, we also have our um, renewal planning tool, a capital renewal tool. And um, bringing those folks in was, was really helpful because they may be juggling, I have to do some major renewal in this building either next year or I kick it out five years. And if they know that it, there's some priorities in here for energy or automation or user complaint, we may move that project up and um, we we'll want to make sure that we get the most of the bugs out before um, they start doing the renewal planning. So um, a lot of human input, some of it's quite subjective actually, but um, again, it helps with that emotional buy-in and if we're getting the task done, that, that's the main thing. That's great. Would you consider this program that you put together uh, having some type of life cycle management associated with it? Like a, it's constantly evolving. Yes, I, I don't think we're ever, ever done. And um, we've got a program for commissioning new buildings. We've got a program for retro commissioning major renewal work. This is getting us down to a more granular level of um, spot checking or prioritizing individual buildings. And then what we're still working on is how do you get the most value out of kind of the daily review of the analytics? Because what we found is you can only process so much data so often. Yeah. And we've gotten to a point where we can process it on a monthly basis, maybe a weekly basis. But what are the day-to-day -day things that can be done by our HVAC techs, by our plumbers, by our electricians? How do we get more people engaged with the tool in a productive manner? They have buy-in to the tool. They like using the tool. And we're not stepping on each other's toes. That's kind of the challenge right now is we're all using the tool. Um, how do we do it effectively? So people in process, it's fun, it's, you know, it's, it's new, um, but I like the momentum we're building and uh, uh, people don't see this just as a, an energy uh, pet project anymore. This is something that we can all build together. Well, that's fantastic. I wish you continued success. Thank you very much, Jerry. We'll see you a little bit later on. Great, take care everyone. And next up, uh, our next panelist is uh, Francisco Ruiz. He's the Global Infrastructure Strategist and Director of IoT at Oracle. Welcome. Hey, thank you. Appreciate it. And thank you to the RealCom family for putting this together. Michael for the intro and Jerry again for sharing your experiences at Stanford. Um, so I'm happy to be here representing Oracle, sharing some of my latest experiences with you all. This includes the work and results of an awesome team that I lead supporting IoT globally for somewhere near 143,000 employees and 22 million square feet of owned and leased space globally. 
go ahead and uh, get to the next slide here. Thank you. Um, so at, at Oracle, our mission is to help people see data in new ways, discover insights, and unlock endless possibilities. So it's only fitting that I share some of the best practices we exercise within our portfolio in leveraging data and analytics. Uh, I have minimal time to share with you today. Therefore, I'm going to spend most of my time discussing some critical architecture considerations that support the theme of the webinar, which is collection, transportation, normalization, integration, analysis, and protection of the data. Sorry, I'm experiencing a little lag here on the on the slides here. So you know, first, uh, I'm going to start with some of the whys and what's um, before I get into the architecture. You know, our st strategy has various outcomes that we wanted to achieve with technology that supports sustainability, portfolio optimization, and employee experiences while applying universal design principles. So uh, this list of outcomes continues to evolve with changing the changing climate of corporate real estate. Today, more than ever, we're tasked with creating environments that make the value that employees place on being in the office equal to, if not greater than the value they place on working remotely. So from a technology standpoint, it's certainly created an exciting path towards infusing digital technology and the culture of the company into physical spaces, really creating inclusive employee experiences regardless of where we're working from. So we're always looking to learn from both the successes and failures and certainly not afraid to fail uh, and appreciate that it's part of the innovation uh, cycle. So the ingredients to many of these outcomes have matured in the guidelines and standards over the years, and uh, the employee experience is currently at the forefront. We're all trying to really skate to where the puck is going and trying to get there, um, but can't quite get there quick enough. Uh, so that's some of the challenges here, but let's uh, continue on. Uh, and apologize here. Hit some delays here. So um, hopefully you can see the, the concept and reality slide here. Um, as we begin leveraging data and analytics from one building to many across our global portfolio, one of the goals was to democratize information throughout the organization to various stakeholders. So we began with a conceptual design, implemented, tested, modified, received feedback, and we still continue to improve upon it in uh, various digital building lifecycle exercises. So a major reason why we're able to continue to build upon this over the years is due to the architecture on the left, which is visualized through a single pane of glass as shown on the right. Um, so to augment some of what my colleague Jerry shared, I'll be focusing on some of the architectural considerations that are critical building blocks that helped us arrive to our current destination along this journey. So this architecture um, that, uh, that you see here um, has continued to evolve for us over this last half decade or so. From the inception of our IoT program you know, at Oracle, we wanted to remove any overlaps in point solutions. We wanted to leverage a common infrastructure and digitally transform our portfolio. Through, partners, through our partnership and collaboration with various stakeholders, including real estate facilities, IT risk management, and many more created, um, you know, collaborated to create this architecture. Uh, this provides us security, flexibility, consistency and deployment, maintenance and security at minimum. It also supports legacy existing and future technologies. 
So as the portfolio evolves as a result of acquisition, sale of land, purchases, et cetera, you know, we utilize this architecture to aid operations staff with the means to operate their buildings effectively, remotely, and in a secure manner while incorporating automation, integration, and innovation where and when feasible. So it's not a one-size-fits-all. Uh, this all consists of data, device, network infrastructure, and application layers that'll, um, that stakeholders can access, which supports the tech of past, today, and tomorrow. So I'm gonna explain each of these tiers briefly in the architecture, starting with the data. So I believe this is the most important tier in the architecture. Some requirements we had was to make sure that we own the data. It's hosted in Oracle's cloud infrastructure. Uh, we want to have the flexibility to share it with other applications uh, via API. Uh, and in order for the applications themselves to excel, which we'll talk about in a moment, um, individually and do, do what they do best, we need to provide the context. Um, so the applications need a way to understand all the data they're consuming, uh, including the underlying devices, data points, and how they fit together as a whole to support our strategy. So this allows us to keep the complexity of our applications independent of one another and from the data. We've used multiple standard ontologies along the way, uh, you know, beginning with Project Haystack, which has been around for about 10 years, the brick schema, and now beginning to incorporate some of the real estate core. But this has really helped us reduce mapping and integration efforts amongst applications. And this layer is also important to record asset data, which uh, uh, is for every device and critical to our build, building life cycle and use for operations and information security of all devices on our network. So moving on here to um, the device layer, this is where we have all of our traditionally siloed systems, each with their unique purpose, inputs and outputs, stakeholders and, and value. Um, they each have their own separate stacks, including network, asset info, uh, data models, storage, user interfaces, and devices. So it's very important for us to clearly isolate uh, the point solutions on their individual VLANs, not only for uh, security purposes, like Jerry mentioned, uh, but also you know, providing that inter-VLAN communication as necessary. So I would caution folks of the gap um, of what you need from these systems individually versus what they're capable of. Um, as it'll really help you avoid unnecessary overlaps, costs, silos, and confusion. Because um, I, I, I don't know about everyone else, but um, I've never really heard a vendor tell me, no, they can't do something. So just wanted to caution on, on that. So by the time you know we get the data from these systems, though, back to the data layer, they must abstract away um, all complexity you know, at the edge there while on premise. And you know, I have to stress the importance of this layer and commissioning required for everything that builds atop this foundation. Uh, if you put garbage into the data model, then garbage will come out and affecting everything on top of it, analytics and other applications that build um, on these point solutions. So now that we've covered the, the data and devices, let's discuss the needed network infrastructure required to collect, transport, integrate, and, um, and uh, protect the data. So the uh, the network infrastructure uh, has its own hardware, software standards, policies, and 
key stakeholders in IT that are responsible for the One of these keeps COVID away. I'm sorry, can someone mute, please? Um, thank you. For, for the network, which facilitates integration, monitoring, maintenance, security, redundancy, and the uptime at minimum. So uh, my team fills that ITOT gap by partnering with IT and product development teams to provide the context and requirements needed to implement and manage the smart building network effectively, as well as aiding in enterprise alignment towards our company mission. At minimum, this provides means to authenticate users, allow remote access, um, not only to the application, but for administration, secure data transport, uh, facilitating edge device communications up to our Oracle cloud infrastructure, um, communication between devices, VLANs and firewall rules, uh, and much more. So very, very important. Um, and so we'll move into the uh, application layer here, which sits on top of the data layer and produces actionable info through mobile, web, and automated integrations. The, the various applications enable us to meet the requirements of specific use cases, which vary by building application type. So this gives us the flexibility to pilot, test, integrate, innovate, and really scale supporting um, guideline and standards development. Um, after you know we, we get through some of these cycles. So some of the common applications are employee experience applications, our single pane of glass, which is very, very uh, popular these days and has been for, for some time uh, for energy management, ESG data collection and reporting, space utilization, fault detection diagnostics, as uh, Jerry shared with us earlier, um, as well as our own uh, products on the enterprise for companies like Oracle. Um, but digital twins, um, AI and ML, et cetera. So, you know, with that, um, I'd like to uh, uh, just conclude with the, the final, I, um, you know, I began by just sharing that we wanted to democratize this info throughout the organization, the various stakeholders. Um, this architecture enables us to do so and easily pivot as required without getting locked into specific layer issues associated with proprietary systems, vendors, applications, et cetera. So ultimately it enables us to successfully deploy and manage technologies that support sustainability, portfolio optimization, and employee experiences while you know, creating this inclusive environment. So in parallel, it supports our digital building lifecycle, which benefits real estate and facilities, our product development, and the industry through the uh, amazing efforts that are in the industry innovation lab. So I'll end it at there, and um, I wish I could go further in depth, but uh, I'm out of time here. So thank you very much. No, that was fantastic, Francisco. Thank you very much for that presentation. I think it gave a great overview of what is actually, what encompasses uh, getting into your data and analytics, uh, especially the foundational piece. Uh, a couple of questions that come to mind, though. What's the biggest challenge you're experiencing as you strategize and architect a workplace of the future that will leverage that CRE data and analytics. Yeah, you know, as I, as I mentioned earlier, we're really trashed with creating environments that, you know, make the value the employee uh, places on being in the office equal to, if not greater than the value that they place on working remotely. And to successfully create that type of seamless experience, uh, I believe it means we need an integrated approach, starting with the employee experience, that includes our MEP system, space utilization, wellness, 
and again, universal design principles while not sacrificing information security. So um, we need to make it less complicated, certainly, because it's, it's no small feat, but I, I think that's the biggest challenge, um, you know, moving forward beyond just point solutions. Oh, that's fantastic. Again, thank you so much, Francisco, and we'll see you a little bit later on as well. Thank you, Michael. Appreciate it. And uh, before I introduce our next panelist, I'd like to remind everybody that uh, they do have the capability of submitting any questions into the Q&A section within the chat. Uh, it would be greatly appreciated to hear some of the feedback. I know I've got a couple of questions for later on, uh, driven from some of the presentation so far. Um, but our next panelist is Aaron Brondham, who is the Vice President of Customer Success at Prescriptive Data. Welcome, Aaron. Thanks, Michael. Glad to be here and glad to continue the conversation here. Um, with the group. Uh, before I dive into the uh, the presentation here about ML and AI and, and how that turns buildings into to useful data, just want to share a little bit about uh, our company and our, our core product. It's uh, Nantum OS, and Nantum's a cloud-based, highly secured building operating system that integrates with any existing building systems, including non-BMS facilities and BMS of any make, model, or year, as well as third-party applications with open APIs. Uh, through a combination of local data harvesting and direct cloud connecting hardware, you know, Nantum captures any stores and stores real-time data from previously siloed building systems. Not only are all building systems united in a single mobile platform, but correlations made between the systems can uncover optimizations never previously explored in building operations. You know, Nantum applies the data in three key ways. First, it adjusts systems in near real time through machine to machine automation. Second, it alerts building operators of operational drifts. Um, and it also displays KPIs for portfolio owners, building managers, and operators in a, in a supervisorial cockpit. Um, you know, kind of hitting back on, uh, you know, what Francisco and, and Jerry touched on um, a bit is, is the data has got to be in a good useful form uh, to be ingested, to be able to use um, for advanced analytics, but then also to be shared into different platforms. And so I'm going to touch a bit on, um, you know, how some of the thoughts on how AI and ML can be used to help better ingest and organize this data and the types of applications that uh, can benefit from it. So what we see here is, you know, over the past few years, we're starting to see more and more data. Lots and lots of IoT devices are being installed into buildings. Everything's getting smarter. And so what we're trying to do here in the objective of, of incorporating AI and ML is to significantly reduce the human effort or error when integrating mapping and identifying building sensors and points. You know, the problem we have is, is there's just thousands of data points and control points and making sure that those points are labeled and, and tagged correctly to be able to use for something like energy comfort optimization or other things, you know, it can take a lot of time and can be costly to do it. Um, and also there's expertise that's needed uh, to be do that, to do that. And you have to have some domain expertise um, and good understanding of the target uh, building context, you know, what types of systems they are and what types of schemas are, um, um, we should be uh, tagging everything at. So, you know, using an AI ML solution, uh, can dramatically reduce this. It can dramatically pull out the, the human error factor that potentially comes in. If we're able to get uh, thousands of buildings onto a single platform that can anonymize uh, the existing data that's classified, 
and training ML models uh, using AI to be able to recognize patterns in data, looking at naming conventions as one part of it, but then potentially looking at how does this data point behave? What are the values of the data over a 24 hour period or a one week period? Can we then use that ML model to then classify and tag those data, that data to its, uh, its appropriate uh, source? So just to take a step back is, you know, you know, how is this data important? What types of systems can benefit from it? And so one of the things that, you know, the Department of Energy comes up with um, and we've been collaborating with uh, the GSA on is, is EMIS and it's a term that they use. And what goes into an EMIS is, is really classified as three different parts. So one part is the energy information system. Um, and that's to help keep track of all the energy that's being used, um, fault detection and diagnostics, which uh, you know Jerry shared a lot about of what they're doing at Stanford. But then a, another part that uh, is fairly new and something that, that we're very focused on is automated system optimization. Um, so it's bringing all the different types of data from the different systems to then bring a full solution to a building so that you can manage all your energy, you can manage all the operational deficiencies, and then you can also automate based on the information um, that you're able to uh, uncover. So the traditional method that we have is, is you know, we have our building, typically we have a BMS, we've got sensor data, and they've got some leading things, and you know, Haystack was at the forefront of it um, as far as coming up with building ontologies. Um, we're now starting to see, you know, bricks come into play but now we've got Microsoft that's coming up with one, and now we've got Google that's coming up for one. And unfortunately, there's not a single ontology that everybody can agree upon that they're going to, to use. Um, and so our traditional method when we got started um, in the business uh, a few years ago is let's, let's focus on Haystack and Brick, and let's bring those into our platform. Let's follow those standards. And that's helped us create some really good data models. And now we're at the point where, you know, we have all that information. We've got lots and lots of buildings connected into the platform. And now we're focused on taking that data, that information that, you know, it was really painful to do. We had to manually tag it and manually bring it in. You know, we'd like to think that uh, a building management system might already have the data tag, but unfortunately, um, it's very rare. It's it's an anomaly that we're seeing on our end that that if somebody actually does incorporate tagging into, um, you know, their standards. And so the thoughts are now is you know we've built that we have that data we've classified the data we've done the hard work now let's leverage the AI and ML um, that we have native to our platform to then now look at new data um, and classify it, tag it, name it, but also do it in a way that it can potentially support Haystack, it can support Brick, it can support any net new stuff that's coming out, um, and then classify that and be able to use that in other applications. So how do we do that? Um, and it's all about understanding, you know, here's an example of a building and, and we were able to, to run scenarios through it is, you know, really we've got the, the main piece of equipment is an air handler. So it has to do with the airflow that goes into it. And all the other parts that then get layered into it is, you know, we've got fan feedback, uh, you know, valve positions, speeds, we've got pump statuses. And how does that, all that data relate to one another and get tagged accordingly and, and to also to identify what parts of the building this does this serve? And um, being able to bring that in and, uh, use ML and AI models 
uh, to tag it and it's it's just made our lives a lot easier and, and it's definitely a lot more reliable and we're able to gain benefit from the data in a much faster pace than when we were previously having to do uh, a lot of this manually. So the idea here is, you know, we've got thousands and thousands, if not millions of data points within the platform. We've got a bunch of them classified. Our models, as we add more data, can then classify it. Um, we can make some correlations to it, decide how close they actually relate to, say, for example, here, um, you know, a, a, a space temperature. Um, and here's some of the data points that brought in. And hey, we know that this is an interior space temperature based on some of the naming convention conventions that, that are used um, on the points themselves, but then also how do, you know, the, how do those data points react over a, a period of time? And there is that um, data set, uh, an example of, of a space temperature sensor. Sorry. Um, so the type of features that can benefit from this are startup, anomaly detection, benchmarking, people counting, we can do simulations, demand management, comfort management, uh, energy management, system optimization. And just lastly is an example of, you know, outside of just tagging, ML and AI can also be used to understand the patterns and the behavior of data. So this example of, hey, we expect the water in this building to operate within that gray band. And as soon as it moves out of that normal position, we're able to send an alert to a, to a building operator. And, uh, you know, that was a lot to cram in a short period of time, and I, I hope it was helpful. That was really good information. Uh, just a real quick question for you, Aaron. What, what's the biggest hurdle for buildings to start AI and ML? You know, one, they need to be open to it. Um, a lot of people get scared um, from it. It's, it's a change. Um, it's, it's not something that's new new to them. It's, it's, there's a lot of... Uh, confusion out there of what it actually means and, and, and what the, the benefits of it. Um, but also we run into a lot of systems that are just not managed to maintain. You know, here we are in, in 2022 and, you know, I was on a site yesterday that is still using a proprietary control system from, you know, uh, 25 years ago. And, you know, the vendor doesn't even support the system anymore. Um, and so it's, uh, it's probably one of the biggest challenges. Great, thank you for sharing that and we'll see you a little bit later. Thanks. Our next panelist I'd like to introduce is Alex Grace. He's the Vice President of Business Development at Clockworks Analytics. Alex? Thanks, Michael. Hopefully you can see me now. Oh, I think you're there in spirit, just not in video yet. <laughs> there we go. Great. Great to see you all. Thank you. Uh, we'll go ahead and jump in here. A lot of great content, a lot of information. I think the most challenging thing with these webinars is always just knowing the technical level in the audience. So I'm going to try to cover some of the technical side as well as some of the use case side and start off just introducing who Clockworks is. I believe we're supposed to spend a minute on that just so you understand who you're talking to and and give a quick introduction to the company, the platform, and then dive into information model. You know, we're talking a lot about data cleansing, data normalization. So talk about that a little bit, what we see as a challenge in the market, what we see as really areas that have been solved or should be solved, 
and uh, how a lot of large organizations, tens of millions of square feet, are handling this problem. So I don't want to speak, you know, directly from uh, uh, the vendor side, but more from the examples of these large portfolios that we work with. So let's go ahead and and get started. There's always a delay, so hopefully this will advance. Um, so introducing Clockworks, we have a a unique approach. We've been around for 12 years. Company evolved out of MIT back in 2010. We have one global analysis engine. So that means rather than information silos of installing something, whether it's on a cloud server or on premise, running some sort of analytics, um, actually having all data globally today across 30 countries, 2,500 buildings, stream into that global analysis engine that represents about 450 million square feet of space and about 340,000 mechanical assets. So the topic of, you know, how do you scale? How do you really do this at scale is not a, a theoretical one for us, certainly across that those volumes with those numbers increasing all the time. That third bullet there is one that I would like to focus on because it's important to keep, you know, as we talk about data and get real nerdy about the different uh, data concepts here, you know, at the end of the day, what this is all really about is, is getting the information to a point that someone can take action. Again, not in an abstract way, but within Clockworks, we have over 30,000 completed tasks. That means that the information got to a technician to replace a valve, to fix an actuator, to replace a sensor, to stage the cooling towers more efficiently, to solve the range of mechanical and controls problems that consistently appear in buildings and that maintenance teams are used to dealing with in a reactive way, shifting them more to a proactive mode, right? So we'll come back to some of those concepts here. Um, and then of course, the last one, we, we often, when we talk about energy, it's a common use case for clients, right? And the really important point there is that energy savings is a natural byproduct of predictive maintenance. So natural result of getting proactive, of being able to find problems before they become big headaches, is the, the energy savings component in addition to the maintenance savings. So let's just talk a little bit about the challenge because I think, again, a lot of, you know, really in the weeds concepts here. And I want to just frame out what are the real human use cases that we're trying to deal with in working with data, normalizing it, standardizing it, getting an information model where it can truly provide value to an organization. So what is the end goal and what is the problem that we're trying to address, right? So of course, a lot of energy waste opportunity in buildings, EPA says 30% on average. Center for Built Environment and uh, Berkeley says that over 40% of workers are dissatisfied with the comfort in their space. Now comfort is one thing, but when we're talking about, let's say a hospital with an OR or a critical manufacturing operation, comfort takes uh, an additional dimension beyond human comfort and really touches on critical space conditions as well. Third bullet, super interesting, over 80% of equipment fails for non-age-related reasons, meaning before its end of life. So sometimes finance folks tend to treat, you know, uh, maintenance as a given, right, and equipment capital replacement costs as a given, but it's really not if we look at it and understand that equipment tends to fail earlier than it should, so how do we keep that going? Fourth one, super interesting, that over 55% of maintenance is reactive, right? There's already an alarm. There's already a comfort call, and now we have to respond, not knowing exactly where the root cause is, not knowing exactly what parts we need to bring. That reactive maintenance is incredibly more expensive. The, the, the common 
Um, citing on that in the FM world is that reactive maintenance is actually 10 times more expensive than proactive maintenance. Um, so, you know, some quick data that helps validate that. Love that 10 years ago doing this webinar, there wasn't nearly as much research out there to really validate this at scale. So love the DOE work that's been done and um, Aaron actually touched on it a little bit as well. But on the left here is this campaign, the Smart Energy Analytics Campaign from DOE run by Lawrence Berkeley National Labs. Fantastic work on fault detection and diagnostics and energy information systems, rolling that up in this banner of EMIS. This industry sure loves their acronyms, that's for sure. Bottom line, savings not only appears, but it continues over time, right? Um, that, you know, the thing I often say, the interesting thing about low-hanging fruit is that it doesn't stop growing. And the data seems to validate that in that chart, as you can see, savings numbers five over time. And PNNL doing great work on the more on the O&M side. So how, what is the average, you know, what's the potential to eliminate breakdowns? So validating the fact that equipment fails unexpectedly, what's the opportunity to go against that? In the interest of time, I'm going to keep moving here. So now I'm going to get into some information model concepts. We'll get a little nerdy here and then we'll zoom back out again. Um, the way a lot of this industry works is this concept of point tagging. There's been some descriptions about it so far. You know, the concept of adding tags to points, of course, it's very valuable. On the other hand, different technicians and different engineers can tag data and equipment in different ways. Meaning it's very easy to take a quote unquote tagging standard and create a non-standard very quick. Because if you can tag things differently, it means that you've got a challenge there, right? So that's one approach. And typically we tag buildings and then on the left, you start to apply logic against those tags. So what points do you have to work with? And the point we're making here is that Really, this creates a massive challenge around custom. The word custom for a building owner that has millions of square feet, it should really be a bad word. Why? Because it means that custom code that needs to be manually created and most importantly maintained over time as your buildings change. Sequence of operation change, controllers get swapped out. This becomes a giant management headache. So we've got a whole white paper on this on, on the global information model. And it goes into some of this, but most of the industry is familiar with what I'm showing, which is you tag things, you apply logic, and what you find very quick is that your logic works in some places and doesn't work in others. So for a long time, there's been a misunderstanding about where the IP really is in this industry. It's not in the logic. Being able to write a, a rule like this and find a leaking valve, it's not very complicated. The challenge is how do you apply that rule when you have every type of different hundreds of different scenarios you come across in the field when you start to apply that logic to an air handler. So this is a simple one looking for a leaking valve. It requires some simple data points. Is the air handler on? Is the hot water valve position at 0%? Is there a temperature gain across the coil? The rule one's perfectly here at the top. It breaks here because we don't have an intercoil temp. It breaks here because there's no fan status. Again, the result of that is custom rule writing needing to be done on a one-off basis. That code, that logic only lives with that building, with that piece of equipment, with that implementation. In other words, consolidating data, massaging that data, and then creating a new information silo. So when we talk about a global data model, it's really a fundamentally different approach. And again, a lot of detail online about this um, that is really worth looking at. 
And it's really about the fact that data points have a defined place in a model. Another way to describe it is a digital twin without the 3D layer. And if the data points themselves are only one source of data, other important concepts are the metadata, which is the sequence of operations. So how is this equipment supposed to perform? That's what you're seeing in these purple boxes here. In other words, what type of economizer is on this air handler? Is there a dehumidification strategy? Do we have freeze protection? How do those things operate? Those are things that you cannot typically pull off of a controller. So that's a key point there. Um, and the really final point here on, on the impact of that information model is the fact that you need to have the model adapt because there's so many different ways to determine something as simple as is the equipment on. So I'm just going to zero in in the interest of time on this box here, proven on. Is the air handler on? Fan status is one way, but it might be the run, it might be amps, it might be power, it might be the mode, it might be speed feedback. So a lot of different ways to determine that. The point is that that should be done dynamically within an expert system, as opposed to on a one-off basis having to select that and essentially turn a data project into a one-off engineering project each time. And I'll go ahead and... Um, wrap up with a quick definition here that I think is relevant to the topic of, of, of the data management, which is really what it means to have not just fault detection, but fault detection and diagnostics. It's an important concept, and I'm just gonna focus on the right here. So an alarm will tell you that the air handler has a discharge air temp that is too high, right? Fault detection would say something like, this is a large AHU, the issue's been going on for three days. Fault detection and diagnostics is getting to that root cause. So the chilled water valve is stuck. This is impacting all zones on the third floor. Here's the impacts of those problems and putting a dollar value to it. So I'll go ahead and uh, stop there in the interest of time. Great to speak with you all. Great, great presentation, Alex. I look forward to our Q&A session a little bit later on. We'll see you then. Thank you. Our next panelist I'd like to introduce is James Wu. He's the CEO of Interspace. Welcome, James. Thank you. Uh, nice to be here. Thanks for uh, the opportunity to speak. Um, hi, everyone. I'm, I'm James Wu. I'm the CEO at Interspace. Uh, it's a Canadian company that I founded about six years ago. Um, and our mission at the company is really to enable enterprise class customers um, to optimize the return they get on the investment they make in their office space. Um, so what we do is we make it really easy for them to measure how the availability of different workplace resources that they've provided to their staff affects productivity and then use these insights to inform the design and the ongoing operation of, of their workplace. And what we do is relevant to the context of this discussion because we talk a lot about how smart buildings need to be able to leverage data um, about a wide variety of things, air quality, temperature, lighting, et cetera. Um, but from the inner space perspective, we feel it's, it's equally, uh, if not more important, for the smart building to be able to leverage data about the people who are actually using it, the people who are actually occupying the space, um, specifically how they make use of the resources uh, within it. Trying very hard to change the slide. There we go. So, from a corporate perspective, you know, being able to do this makes a lot of sense. Real estate's expensive, uh, so you you want to make sure that it's supporting your employees' productivity. 
But uh, unlike employee performance or other investments that companies make, companies are traditionally invested in their real estate without necessarily any expectation of measuring how effectively it performs in that context, meaning the support of their employees' productivity. Um, and, and here in the post-pandemic office landscape, um, it's now generally considered to be a pretty much a must-have business telemetry. But doing it's really hard. Uh, we almost need this to, you know, to create a new, a new language, a new vein of science in order to really study and 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 understand human behaviors indoors, um, and how we interact with the space that's around us. But if we can do it, like with other sciences, doing it means that we can start to replace th that subjective what we feel about how space is being used and how well it's supporting us with what we know based on objective data and repeatable processes. Um, and with that, we can help build an understanding of our interaction with indoor spaces uh, that can you know, really inform the design of spaces to perfect the, that indoor experience. So this is not necessarily a, a, a new thing. The impetus to do this happened you know, started long before the pandemic hit us. Since the 80s, companies have been recognizing that these ever-increasing costs mean they needed to look for operational efficiencies to improve their space utilization and, and lower those costs. So this trend line of compression was pretty clear, you know, over the past few decades, as private offices gave way to cubicles, which gave way to, you know, open floor plans and then flex office strategies and hot desks, hotel, and et cetera. But in the context of today's notion of the hybrid workplace, the need for a massive office footprint is being questioned, and thus the need to understand how it is supporting operations has really, has really come to the forefront. So we call this you know, new must-have business data spatial intelligence, and others refer to it as utilization analytics. And while our customers today use it to inform their real estate decisions and figure out their hybrid office strategy. There are many opportunities to integrate this kind of data about behavior into existing smart building systems to make those systems much more responsive, not just to input like heat or you know, valve positions or allergens, but, but responsive to people. And, and not just responsive necessarily, but proactive. So in its simplest form, what I'm talking about is occupancy data. It is a space occupied, and if so, by how many people and for how long? Um, but so when people talk about people counting systems or people counting sensors, this is the occupancy data that they're really, that they're, they're referring to. But there is a whole set of far more advanced spatial intelligence analytics that can deliver insights not just about how many people uh, might be in a space or in an area, but who's there and where are they going and how often do they come back? So path analytics or, you know, or traffic flow, it tells you where current people in the space have come from uh, and, and where they went next, uh, where they typically go next. For example, if there's 10 people in say room 101, path analytics might tell you that five of them were previously in the kitchen and three of them came from team area two. And in this way, you can start to understand the, the, the flow of people through your space and, and how the design of your space impacts flow. Uh, population analytics can tell you in a, in a 
privacy protected way, who is in the space by way of demographics. Um, so we can think of cohorts of different types of behaviors, groups of that represent different types of behavior in a space. And so by doing it this way, we can preserve individual anonymity um, and protect privacy. So these, this, these kind of metrics or these kind of, of analytics can tell you simple things like, you know, of, of the 10 people in that room 101, uh, three of them were in this room earlier today, or three of them this room were in this room earlier in the week. Um, or can tell you more complex things like of the 10 people currently in that room, five of them are, are, are on the sales team. So, I, I mean, I'll wrap up with, you know, trying to trying to demonstrate like why this might be important, how this might be really valuable insight. Um, and I think this, what we're, what I'm showing here is a great example of the insights that this kind of data can, can produce. So when you, when you can understand frequency and pathways and, and most importantly, when you can understand that information by, by group behavioral demographics, you can suddenly see that there isn't a one single way in which space is, is being used. So how space is used depends on who we're talking about, you know, the the, the requirement that say group 13 has on this slide down you know, the bottom left corner, uh, the requirements that they have of their space are very different from say this group five over here. Um, one is very infrequently on the site uh, and doesn't move much when they're there. The other is much more frequently on site and is far more mobile when they are there. Um, but it probably won't surprise you that I called these two out specifically because these two teams, because this is actual, this is some, you know, an extraction of some actual customer data. These two teams share the same space. They are provided with the exact same resources and expected to do perform their work in the exact same space, yet their needs of it are very, very different. So ultimately, my point here is that you know, next-gen smart buildings that are attempting to balance the, the, the occupant experience against the operating costs um, of the building or of the business need to close that data loop uh, with data about the occupants themselves, how they use space, how they react to the changes that are made to capture those operating cost efficiencies, et cetera. Uh, that's the only way that they're actually going to know when that right balance between experience and operating costs has been found. That was a great presentation, James. Thank you for that contribution. Uh, just a couple of quick questions from the mind. What, what's the main problem companies are facing right now without the right data? Well, I mean, without, without, as with any, you know, whether it's in my domain or, or any business domain, without the right data, you're making guesses. It might be informed guesses. It might be instinctive guesses, but they're still guesses. So making informed decisions is the, is the name of the game here. Um, and so just like that last example I provided, if you don't know that one team is using a space very differently than another team, or if you are evaluating all of your groups with the, you know, by the, by the lens of the, the aggregate or the average, you, you're, you're ultimately not doing anybody a, a service uh, in, with respect to providing them resources specifically tailored to their needs. Oh, that's great. And why isn't occupancy counting enough? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, they're probably could say the two sides of the same coin. 
occupancy counting is a baseline. Like you do need it. It's very, very important to understand the volume of people that are using a space because it can it provides you know some of those basic insights. But it isn't enough to tell you that if I tell you there's a hundred people in the space, you don't know that. Well, really, 90 of them are only there, 90 of them are visitors, and 10% are the people that are using the space most of the time. Because if you knew that, you would design that space, operate that space, invest in that space to support the 10% and not the 90. And so if you only have the counts, you're, again, painting everybody with the same brush, and you're designing for the, you know, the, the, the average. Uh, you aren't being able to really find those last mile efficiencies by catering to the people that are using the space the most. Oh, that's great. Well, thank you very much, James. We'll see you a little bit later on during Q&A. Appreciate it. Great. Thank you. Next up, I'd like to invite uh, Kevin Schaffman, who's the CEO of Navigator CRE. Kevin? Welcome. Thank you, Michael. Yeah, great to be on. And of course, thank you to the whole RealCom team. I've done a lot of these webinars before. I only have one slide. Uh, I, I, for most people that have heard me talk, I like to get super tactical. All right, there's been a lot of great discussion around what would you do with data models to protect it and make it worthwhile, but how would you use that information to actually make a building smart? Uh, that's part of what Navigator does. We are a decision acceleration engine at the executive level. So while some of the information provided today on really, really deep in the weeds, you know, air handling unit stuff is super valuable, what executives want to know is how they can maximize profitability of a building if they are the investor or owner of it, uh, maximize the experience to the people in the building if they are the manager or operator of the building. And then if you're visiting the building, uh, ensure that um, you have a nice experience while you're there without leaving behind any information you don't want to. Uh, so I've divided this up into a few categories and I wanna walk through each one. Uh, first, if a building is smart, it is going to know um, what folks are coming into that building uh, day after day, either as one-time visitors, as consistent visitors, as tenants, as contractors, as employees, or as uh, you know, internal uh, users. Um, and a lot of people talk about, like I've heard bad swipes a bunch, right? Castle systems, secure, and a bunch of other tools. Uh, most buildings today are only tracking the entry information. You swipe your badge, right? When you go in, uh, you walk up to the turnstile to leave and they're not actually swiping when you leave because that brings in a bunch of privacy concerns that most states won't allow you to get past. So you're now only tracking who comes in the building and not necessarily how long they are there. Uh, unless they're swiping in once, they leave for lunch, they come back later, swipe in again. So you know that there is some, some back and forth in a particular building visit. Uh, you can timestamp when someone walks into a building, uh, which can be valuable in a variety of ways. Uh, are most of the people that are coming to the building as consistent tenants because they have a normal badge are they swiping in between the rush hour morning hours or are some of them filtering in around lunch or in the afternoon? Uh, and then do you have a bunch of people that are visiting with temporary badges where they check in with a, a kiosk and they're scattered throughout the day or are they also visiting early in the morning? That time stamping will allow you to decide what your service level should be in the building, what your employees existing to provide that tenant experience should be in the building at that time. Uh, and where there might be stress or load 
uh, on the system in the building. Uh, the point of entry also matters a ton. Is there a single entrance where people are walking in and swiping into the building so there is controlled flow? Or are there multiple systems for different personas? Maybe your visitors and your consistent badge tenants are coming in the main entrance. Maybe your contractors are coming in a, a side, side entrance. Maybe your delivery people are coming in the back. If you don't have the same system tracking entry information, you're not actually tracking all those people and therefore you're only getting a certain subset of data. And we also want to know how often these folks are visiting the building. Uh, James talked a lot about how space is used. That's often defined by how often space is visited. Uh, if you have a bunch of visitors coming in on Tuesday and Wednesday because they're collaborating with team members, but they're staying at home on Monday and Friday, is that actually going to change uh, the amenities you offer in the building or the layout of the space? It might not, right? It just might define the service level that you provide inside that building. Um, next, next up is, is how is the building actually being used once people come inside of it? Uh, are they coming because they're tenants and they're going to the same office every day? Are they coming because they're visiting some sort of amenity space, a food and beverage out, an entertainment facility, a meeting space? Um, are they coming by themselves to dive into solo work in a private office where they're going to have AirPods on just like this? Or are they coming to collaborate specifically with other team members because if those people weren't there, they wouldn't be coming in the building, right? Um, and then lastly, um, is this actually a specific office where we're going to be doing work or is this a completely different facility? Most of our discussion today has been around the office building, but this could be had for a retailer. It could be had for a hotel, a multifamily building, an industrial logistics warehouse, a hospital. Um, the purpose of coming to that building will drive the services that need to be provided. Um, and that leads us to convenience. Um, there's a lot of ways you can make a building feel more convenient. Um, it can be the design and aesthetic, how much natural light is coming into the building, what kind of soundproofing is put into the building when people walk in, is there an echo? Or is it seen super, super quiet? Is there music? Is there, is there art? Is there light? Is the air seem crisp and clean? Uh, all of that drives a bunch of experience and, and the quote I call welcoming. Um, and then I'm not going to dive too much into what is proactive or reactive maintenance because the other folks in the call done such a good job doing that. Um, but the reason why I put that into the convenience category is because if no visitor or contractor or tenant or employee ever experiences anything bad because there's no breaks while they're there because the preventative maintenance is being done, that can in turn drive higher rents. It can attract better uh, retail or other tenants into the building because they trust the performance of the building. It could also drive better foot traffic, et cetera. Um, and then for folks that are visiting the building, they wanna know that uh, if they're using their device, inside the building and maybe connecting to its Wi-Fi network that their data is protected, not being shared with any others that shouldn't be. Um, the owners also want to know that they're not sharing or opening up access to information that shouldn't be shared with people that are coming inside the building and yet aren't the owners. Um, and then, of course, if anything is happening to the building, uh, the maintenance team wants to understand that before it gets out of hand. Um, now, all four of these categories are really measured so that they can drive the fifth one because it's all well and good uh, to, to care about ESG, but it can only be done if you're measuring uh, how that's going to lead to profit, because the profit drives the investments in the infrastructure that then make a building greener, cleaner, and more convenient. Um, 
there's a lot that goes into this. James covered the space planning piece. Uh, Aaron and his team at Prescriptive Data covered the ESG piece. Uh, and for those of you who are, who are trying to get more serious about ESG analytics, I would encourage you to look at that platform. It's quite nice. Um, the amenities matter more and more these days. It used to be a pretty standard set of uh, restaurants uh, or maybe a gymnasium or uh, you know, retailer stores, or consumer packaged goods or clothing. Uh, that amenity mix is changing a bunch because they're trying to pull people who are only incentivized to come to the office when they want to collaborate with others socially. How do we bring those people to the buildings more often? And then lastly, none of this matters if you're not comparing performance information over time, right? You probably had, as a building owner, operator, manager, or investor, a set count of visitors and contractors and tenants the month before the pandemic started, and that was your baseline. And you also had a service level that was delivered in that building based on that baseline. So if visit count is half, if tenant occupancy count is half, should service level be half or can you not get away with that? That benchmarking begins to matter not only for current operational performance and NOI analysis, but also for underwriting the transactions when you want to either acquire or ground up develop a new building. With that, Michael, I'd love to answer any questions you have. Oh, thank you very much, Kevin. That was really insightful. Uh, I like the concept of making sure that you take a holistic approach to the data that's producing the result to your query so that you're not going off half-cocked and making bad decisions because you didn't have all the facts, right? Um, how are your clients using building data to drive profit? It, it's it's kind of a, a sad thing to admit, but, but less than you'd think. Uh, for, there's a, a couple buckets. One, the leasing data is obviously super important. Uh, if they're tracking occupancy trend over time and a lease is, say, six months from renewal, and at this six-month mark, the badge swap counts are 30% of what they were just six months prior, which means still comparing to apples to apples within the pandemic. If they're using the building less, that's going to create some risk uh, amongst renewal to the lease. So being able to proactively reach out to that tenant and understand is there something different they're looking for in the space? Do they want adaptive reuse? Do they want to move to a different part of the building? Are they looking for particular amenities that have reduced visitation from the company? That is one use case. Um, the second use case is clearly uh, energy and utility spend, right? Uh, status to lead certification, energy star ratings, um, whatever the utilities is across for a like kind building nearby, um, they're measuring that data because if rents or lease comps are the same building that's nearby but has better ESG footprint, would it be better to move to that other building? Uh, and then lastly, uh, generalized foot traffic. Uh, so not necessarily badge swipes within the building, but who is walking by near the building and visiting buildings that are close, retailers, event spaces, et cetera. Uh, is that going to be foreshadowing uh, for what demand there might be for that building? And there's plenty of other uses, but those are the most common. Yeah, that makes sense. Thank you. And lastly, what data seems like it would be most helpful to clients, but actually isn't? Mm. Um, or at least hasn't question. been in the past. Yeah, um, we have a lot of clients that get excited about weather data, and we bring all that information into Navigator, and then they don't make any decisions from it because there's always some excuse. Um, you know, it's a it's a it's a black swan event. It's it's force majeure. Or, well, we noticed that uh, temperatures were changing, but that didn't actually drive any differences in, in the 
application for traffic or amenity requests. So it, it, it's nice to have the data in it, but it's really not driving any profit decisions. Oh, that's great. Well, thank you very much, Kevin. Uh, I think right about now, I'd like to invite everybody back, all of our panelists uh, for a final QA here. Excellent. Thank you, everybody. All really great presentations, a lot of very great information shared and a lot of different perspectives. Uh, we've got a couple of questions that popped up from the chat, uh, from the Q&A, and I'd like to kind of go through those right now. Uh, this one's kind of generic and open-ended, uh, but it's a question from Amadou uh, Guai. Hopefully I didn't uh, mess your name up. Apologize if I did. Um, the question is, can we use your analytics platforms to automate certification of buildings to be green or any existing energy efficiency certification? Anybody want to take that? Yeah, I, I, I can take a stab at it is, uh, you know, as far as energy efficiency certification, um, you know, our platform links into Energy Star um, for reporting, it does Grubbs reporting. Um, that's one way to do it. Um, as far as, you know, I don't have a lot of experience. We're mostly in the brownfield space. So as far as new construction and, and like lead certification, things like that, um, I'm not sure how that would apply uh, with, with the automation side of it. Yeah, I think a lot of what's going to be driven out of that, out of these programs and the data and analytics is the proof that you're meeting the KPIs and metrics that are associated with being green and energy efficient certifications, et cetera. Uh, there's a lot of groups that are out there right now that can qualify someone uh, to be lead uh, capable, uh, but there's really not a whole lot of requirement to keep proving it after day two. And so I think that we're going to start seeing a lot of that change in the industry, which is why it's so important to start capturing that data and performing that analytics, both to increase your operational efficiencies. I like to call it proactive efficiency, which is a value that's derived from, from this proactive approach. Uh, and then capturing that data for resource, um, a historical resource, right? And then we've got another question from uh, James Percy. Uh, naming has been mentioned several times, and is there any move to standardize this process? And where he's coming from is he operates a multi-tenant office building, and each tenant usually has their own mechanical contractors, so they often have their own naming model. And so trying to obviously incorporate that into the greater scheme is a little bit challenging. I'm happy to talk on that one as well, if if, if you want. It's it's uh, the problem is 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 one you know the solution is I think what Jerry was getting after is you know Stanford has their their specifications and their naming convention that they have to follow. If you're expecting your your controls contractor, your mechanical contractor, your MEP that's doing your specifications uh, to all be in sync and have the same uh, naming convention, uh, it's a bit unrealistic. It has to come. I believe it has to come from the ownership side of it. Yeah, I'll just add to that that um, specifications is not enough. So the question becomes, how do you validate, right? Um, it's actually, we hear a lot of times that we have specifications and an owner thinks that they have a lot of data standards. And when you get into the details, you find out pretty quickly that they don't. So so there's really two topics there, right? How do you specify it in the first place? And, and, you know, there's a lot of standards that have been mentioned that are more tagging related, like Haystack or, or Brick. 
But the bottom line is having a standard and then having a process to validate. Yeah, I think commissioning of that, proving that it was actually done is probably just as important as specifying it in the first place. Because if you write it down and you don't check that it was done, <laughs> it's not gonna help you at the end. No, that's great. And then a question from Mark Peacock. Hey, Mark. <laughs> Uh, for James, how do you handle the privacy side of occupancy data tracking? Uh, well, very carefully and with, with you know, a high degree of, we put a high degree of importance on it. Um, I mean, I think on the one side, in, 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 in the workplace, there is a different expectation of, there is a different expectation of privacy with respect to, you know, behavior. You badge in, you badge out, you log in, you're connected to workplace you know, equipment like network equipment. So there's already a lot of information about where you are and what you're doing. But at the same time, if one, I mean, as a business, we want to, and we highly prioritize the, you know, being respectful of and protective of people's private information. Um, and at the same time, we've seen it many times with other, with, with not our own systems necessarily, but with, um, you know, anecdotal, uh, anecdotes being provided to us by our customers that employees get super uncomfortable. Like we've, told, we've had, we've had uh, customers tell us that employees have torn sensors off, you know, off walls or on, from under their desks because of the perception that their privacy is being um, mishandled or invaded. So, it, you know, it is very, very important to be, first of all, upfront with people about what, what you're doing and why and what benefit it has. And two, to explain to them, how are you, what, what things are in place to, to make sure that this data is not being used in a way that can identify an individual and an individual's behavior. Um, for, for our own part, we do that in a number of ways through encryption and through, you know, by never ever uh, storing personally identifiable information. Um, but more importantly, by always aggregating, meaning never revealing data that may be anonymized, but never revealing it in an individual in a sort of singular way such that it, uh, identity can be inferred. So it, here I am sitting in my office. I spend most of my time in my office. If there was an, an anonymous you know, a record about somebody who spends most of the time in this location, it can be fairly clearly inferred that it's me. Um, and so we, we, we take great length, we go to great lengths to make sure that can't happen as well. I think there's yeah, there a pretty clear dichotomy though, right? Like between the people that come to an office every day or every week because they are a tenant in that building, they have a badge, they should expect that like certain information is going to be made available to either the owner of the building or to the employer with which they work. Uh, it, it's a, it's a, always a point of contention with typically the younger generation of workers. They want complete privacy and complete autonomy without tracking, and that's just impossible if, if you want to perform for a company and be productive. But there's a very different, I think, level of expectation for someone who is just interacting with a building a single time as a, as a visitor, as, as a shopper, as a contractor who's not going in every single day and having that, that tracking done. Uh, there are two very different data sets, both of which should be anonymized and encrypted and aggregated, but but treated, I think, for decision making very differently. Yeah, I, mean, actually, I think it's important to be able to differentiate cohorts of people, right? And being able to not necessarily paint people all with the same brush. You know, I talked about 100 people in a room, but if 50 of them are visitors or shoppers and the other 50 are employees, you want to make very different decisions based on the behavior of one cohort versus the other. 
Well, that's great. I think that you know kind of touches on the point of the importance of data governance, right? And understanding how you're going to manage your data, what type of data you're collecting as an organization uh, as you travel down the path before you even get to analyzing or creating data, is understanding what type of data you're going to create, right? So as a camera-based sensors, you're making sure that they're compliant with the EU specs. Um, because you know, large buildings here in the US have people from the EU come over and uh, they demand their same rights, and the EU specifies that they shall not collect that type of information from the camera-based sensors. So there, there's all kinds of different things that go into that. And I think that's where data governance is, plays pretty heavily into answering that question. Uh, great answers, though. Thank you. Uh, from Patrick Waterstone, uh, curious on whether privacy issues would impact implementation of workspace occupancy tracking systems. And I think we touched a little bit upon that. But does anybody want to add anything? I mean, I think the answer is it, it, it certainly does, right? Um, increasingly, you know, wh whether or not there should be the expectation of privacy, you know, people carry cell phones around, we're, we're everywhere, you can be, we can be tracked. So whether or not people come to a space with the expectation of some uh, of, of privacy matters a whole lot less as to whether or not it's going to impact the, the decision that a business makes, because if you have your if your employee base is up in arms, because you're they perceive that you're tracking them in some way that they deem unacceptable, you have a problem regardless of whether or not you are, regardless of whether or not it's reasonable, right? Um, and so it, you need to treat it very very carefully. Uh, it, today it is not the same as it was 30 years ago when you know as an employee you kind of just suck it up and did whatever your boss told you to do people have options these days you know we saw a response to say apple and their employees standing up and saying hey we don't want to come back to the workplace we want to we, we don't want to be forced back into the office um so that kind of grassroots response from the employee base will definitely impact a business's decision to implement things like uh, workspace occupancy tracking and it also has to, to effectively communicate what's being collected, right, and how you're handling that. Yep. Yeah, I just wanted to comment. Uh, so a couple of things, um, like you mentioned, uh, I think communication is the most important, um, transparency there. And then uh, it's 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 fairly complicated when you look at all the layers of, of information that provides the space utilization data, whether it's badging, um, whether it's a lighting sensor that's just, you know, occupied, unoccupied, or a standalone sensor, whether or not it's going to someone else's cloud versus depending on who the company is um, and your own policies, um, as well as if you start to get down even more granular into people counting and um, really to have a full, you know, comprehensive view of this, you have to bring all those data sets together and, and have a solution in place. And again, back to the classification of the data um, itself, uh, whether you're here in the U.S. or in the U.K., you know, there's different uh, different rules there. And and so um, all that to say, you know, the governance is very important, it's, it's a, a complicated topic, but it, it's not only used for utilization, but all of that feeds into our automation as well of our of our you know, BMSs and overall occupant experience. So, um, yeah, there's that that fine line between security, what the trade offs are. Um, and what we want to get out of out of these solutions. Yeah, Jerry, I just had a quick question for you, but you have a comment. Go ahead. 
I was going to say just from a, from a, from a large owner's perspective, as we get into these more um, interesting IoT devices that have benefit for, for many stakeholders, you run into the new challenge of who owns this platform. We've run into this with air quality, obviously people counting. Is this an energy thing? Is this a public safety thing? Is it an environmental mental and health safety thing? Uh, is it space planning? And so those things have got to get sorted out as well as just figuring out how you want to use the technology. So it's a bit more challenging than just trying to save some energy with your reheat valves. Yeah, well, and I think that question largely answered, Jerry, by what type of building it is, right? You're, you're working at a university with multiple types of buildings and a bunch of publicly backed key stakeholders that's going to be treated very differently than a, a privately owned office tower. Yeah, and I could see, you know, solution providers, you know, targeting these different entities differently. So it's not going to be one answer. Yep. Well, that was great. Thank you. All right, good, Michael. Uh, thank you so much, Michael, for moderating. You guys did such a great job. See, I told the audience the force was with you, and uh, I think it turned out really great. Uh, thanks to all the panelists uh, for your valuable contributions today, and for our live audience uh, for all those questions. If we got to, if there was any question, I think there was one or two that we didn't get to. I'll send those out to the panelists here at the end, and they can reach out to you directly. I just really want to encourage you also to register for the first part in the corporate real estate series, what does the hybrid workplace look like? That's going to be airing in about two weeks on August the 11th. I think the third section of this is going to be moved into September for this particular series, but uh, uh, great discussions. I think we have some of our highest attendance of live audiences on these types of panels where we've got uh, building uh, uh, Building systems, data, and analytics is, is just a popular topic, and it's just so relevant for what people are doing today. So uh, thanks again. That's it for us today. We wish you well. Be safe, and uh, we'll see you next time with the Realcom webinars. Thanks again. Great. Thank you all.